Good to see you. Good to see you. Why don't you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 16. Uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're coming close, very close to the end. In fact, I had mentioned last week that today would be the very last message out of the Gospel of Mark, and uh, uh, that wasn't entirely accurate, because um, we have one more week. Um, and the reason why that is, because as I was studying this and kind of looking at this larger subject, I began to realize there's a lot to really try to unpack here. And, uh, and if I did it all in one setting, it would be a two-hour sermon, so I'm just sparing you guys, so you should be thanking me. Um, and the reality is, once we finish the Gospel Mark, uh, we'll be getting into a brand new series through the book of Jonah. I'm really excited about that. Before we jump into the book of Jonah, though, I have a really good friend of mine that uh, actually had been a part of our church for a long time. He was uh, a guy that had served here as an intern. Uh, he now pastors a church down in Brazil. He'll actually be coming to our church and sharing with you guys, so you want to make sure that you don't miss that. I think that's like April 21st, so we got a lot of great things in store for you guys over the next few weeks. So um, let's jump into the Gospel of Mark, and before we read this section of the Gospel of Mark, um, we'll pick it up around verse 9, so open up your Bibles to that. Uh, make sure you guys do have Bibles. Hopefully you guys all have Bibles. Um, are the lights on as brightly as we can, because I want to make sure that you guys can read. It look like, looks like they're a little bit dim. Bright as I go, huh? A little bit brighter. There we go. We have light. Good. Now you guys can read your Bibles. Um, we want to make sure you guys have a Bible, so open up to chapter 16. One of the things you may have already noticed, and maybe this is something that you've recognized in your Bibles before, if you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, maybe you noticed it. There's a little um, a side note, or a marginal note, or an annotation that, in probably most of your Bibles, uh, actually says something to this effect. Uh, verses 9 through 20 were later editions. In fact, some translations, I think, might not even uh, have that in the Bible. It's just kind of, it stops at verse 8, and there's nothing else. But I think most Bibles actually have verses 8 or verses 9 all the way through 20 with a little annotation. So I want to address that annotation first before we get into that, uh, just to uh, make sure that we understand. And the best way to address that before we jump in is I want to read a uh, passage out of a commentary that I think uh, said and described this uh, thing really well and uh, identified it well. Um, here's what he said, and I'll make a quick comment on it. I'll make a comment on the commentator. Here's what he says. These verses do not appear in the oldest Greek manuscripts. Their style differs from the rest of Mark, and the transition from verse 8 uh, is awkward. Therefore, some scholars believe them to be scribal editions. Others consider them apostolic in origin, and inspired by God, but not written by Mark. So in other words, what he's saying is that any way you slice it, the transition between verse 8 and 9 through the rest of the chapter is different. It's, it's different in the Greek. It's different in the actual uh, flow. It's different in the actual uh, way in which it's written out. So that's led a lot of scholars uh, to try to ask the question, why? On top of that, they've also recognized that in the, uh, in, in the massive amounts of um, manuscripts they've discovered, the most prominent uh, manuscripts that they discovered from the earliest centuries actually end at verse 8. And we'll get to that in a second here. Um, so he goes on to say, others consider them apostolic in origin and inspired by God. In other words, um, either written by Mark or written by another one of the apostles and thus inspired by God. In other words, part of the true storyline of the gospel account. And then he goes on to finish and add uh, by saying, but not necessarily written by Mark, having been added by an editor to bring closure to an otherwise abrupt ending uh, that others believe Mark wrote them. So in other words, um, some people believe that this is part of Mark's 
storyline. And for some reason, it was omitted from certain manuscripts, and there's a whole, honestly, there's conspiracy theories as to why. But others would just look at it and say um, that maybe a scribe, because uh, remember back then they didn't have printing presses, so they wrote this stuff out. Someone saw, verse 8, as sort of an awkward, abrupt ending to the story of Mark in the gospel, and thus they wanted to kind of add a more fuller picture so that the people that are picking up the story and reading it would have a better flow of understanding what happened after Jesus rose again from the dead. Because if you look at verse 8, it does end quite abruptly, and I'll read it in a second here so you can kind of understand what it's saying. Um, But at the end of the day, what I really want to emphasize is this is whether or not it was actually written by Mark, or whether or not it was added by a later scribe, um, at the end of the day, the content of it is in line with the rest of Scripture. It, so in other words, there's no reason to question whether or not it's, you know, it's, it's in line or in sync with the Scripture, with the Bible, with the rest of the storyline of the Gospel accounts. Um, if it was a totally different ending, meaning Jesus rose again from the dead, and ascended, becoming a Wookiee, then we could look at that and think, I'm not sure if that's in sync with the rest of the scripture, because nowhere else does it say that that happened with Jesus. Then we can question its authenticity. But because the storyline is in sync with the rest of the gospel accounts, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, um, it's safe to assume that it is in sync or inspired by God. So we're going to treat it as such. We're going to read through it. We're going to just kind of give I think proper attention that it deserves because it's in our Bible. So we're going to read through it, and uh, hopefully that helps answer some questions. Now, if uh, I realize, I, I mean, there's literally um, seminary courses on this type of stuff, and I just spoke about it in four minutes, So, uh, which means that there's a lot more that I can say about this that I didn't say. So if this type of stuff intrigues you, because some of you, when I said the word manuscript, you started dozing off. You're like, already starting to sleep. Others of you are like, manuscripts? I like manuscripts. I like side notes. I like marginal notes. Um, you like that type of stuff, and that intrigues you. There's a lot of information on websites that you can look up. So just Google uh, biblical manuscripts, look up uh, that type of stuff, and there's a lot more information that you can find out that actually adds to and helps you understand a little bit how we got the Bible into our possession and so on and so forth and how it was preserved and so on. So that being said, I'm going to read. We'll pick it up at verse 8. And then uh, we'll begin to uh, go down to the end of the chapter. So chapter 16, verse 8 to the end. And they went out and they fled from the tomb and trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. I'm going to just pause real quick and say, if verse 8 was where the story ended, you can understand why that would seem to be an abrupt ending. Because it just sounds like, wow, there's, there's nothing else that happened after this, it, it, that was it, it was over, it was done. Um, and the women are afraid, and they're astonished. Um, this is one of the reasons perhaps the suggestion has been some scribes have come along and have tried to uh, sort of elaborate and build upon that, not necessarily adding to the scripture per se, but just helping to elaborate for the readers that would be reading this in past generations to understand uh, what was actually happening here. So, um, and I'll come back to that in a moment here as to why I think, perhaps, um, if, if Mark did truly end the storyline right here, that's not radically inconsistent with the rest of the way that Mark had written. In other words, Mark oftentimes wrote in ways in which he left us kind of sitting, hanging. He'll say things. He'll do things. Jesus, he'll tell us stuff that Jesus does, and then basically give us a little bit of the storyline as to the response of the disciples, and then that's it. 
and, and the whole intention oftentimes seems to be Mark wants to leave us with wrestling with questions. And, and if that's what Mark's doing here, uh, the question that he leaves with us to ponder and to build upon and to unpack and to work out is a radically powerful question, which we'll get to in a moment. So I'm going to keep reading, and I won't interrupt anymore. Verse 9. It says, And when they rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and from whom he had cast out seven demons. He went and he told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept when they had heard that he was alive, that he had been seen by her, and they went and they would not believe. And after these things, he appeared to another for, in another form to two of them, and as they were walking into the country, they went back and they told the rest, and they did not believe them. And after he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at the table, he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those uh, who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, and they will pick up serpents with their hands, and they will drink uh, any deadly poison, and they will not be hurt, and they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And when Jesus, and when the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, and he sat down on the right hand of God, and they went out and they preached everywhere that the, while the Lord had worked with them, and he confirmed the message by accompanying signs. I want to pray. God, right now we ask that you would just open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds, give us ears to hear. And God, help this truth to begin to transform and change the way that we think, the way that we understand, the way that we live. God, that it would change what we're in awe of. It would change the things that we fear, things that we dread. God, that we would fear the right things, that we would be in awe of the truly weighty things. So God, I pray that you would just let your word begin to transform and change and shape our hearts and our minds and ultimately our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do is um, I'm going to give you just uh, sort of the outline of the next couple of weeks of what we'll look at. Um, and the reason why I said there's a lot to cover and really all of this sort of has to do with what is life like now that Jesus is resurrected from the dead? And I think that's the question that Mark really wants us to ponder. And again, if Mark truly did end the story at verse 8, um, that's not shocking to me. That would not necessarily be something that would be completely unheard of throughout the Gospel of Mark. Because um, if, if this is true, and if the women, which is ironic in and of itself, if the women are the ones that go to the grave, and they notice that the grave is empty, or the tomb is empty, um, we're told, again, in verse 8, it says, And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, and they were in trembling and astonishment, uh, had seized them, uh, and they were afraid. So in other words, these women have been seized, if you would, by trembling, astonishment, and fear. And if Mark had ended the storyline right there, what that would do is it would generate, naturally, a question in our minds. And the question would be, why are they astonished? Why are they afraid? Why are, what, what, what's happened to generate this intensity of emotion? What's caused that? And I think that's exactly what Mark wants us to think. He wants us to ask that question. Because here's the issue. In other words, let me reframe this. If the tomb is empty, now what? If Jesus is not in the grave, now what? If 
Jesus is actually resurrected. How does that affect us? How does that change us? What do we do with that information now? How does it change us? How does it change the disciples? Who do we go tell? Who do we bring into this storyline? These would have been the questions that these, would have, these women would have been pondering. And I think Mark writes in a way intending for us to ask those same questions. In other words, you and I, what a Christian is, is a Christian, the way that we live our Christian walk out is we live our lives in a way asking ourselves a question. If Jesus is resurrected, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my life? What does that mean for the broken relationships that I have? What does that mean for my interaction with death? What does that mean for how I deal with my job and how do I deal ethically with paying my bills? What does that mean for me as being a neighbor? What does that mean for me if Jesus is truly risen from the dead? What does that mean for me in my relationships with those that I have hard times dealing with? They're in my enemies. We have to deal with those questions. I think Mark intends for us to deal with those questions. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that the entirety of the New Testament is all about unpacking that question. Now that Jesus is risen again from the dead, what does that mean? In fact, I would even go so far to say that if you do not frame your theological understanding of the rest of the New Testament in that question, you will miss the storyline of the rest of the Bible. You will read books like Ephesians, and you'll see passages that will say, don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit and love your neighbor and forgive other people. And you will try to live your life in a way of saying, I've got to somehow be good, I've got to forgive people, I've got to not be drunk, I've got to be kind, I've got to not steal, I've got to do all these things. And you will do the best that you can based upon the morality that the Bible gives you, divorced from the storyline of the resurrection. And you will fail Straight up and tell you, you will fail. You will be oppressed. You will be crushed. I'll tell you why. Because as a human being, you already don't live up according to your own standards. You don't. Anybody that's like trying to lose LBs, you're like trying to lose some weight. And you can't. That means you can't even live up to your own standard of dropping five pounds. You can't even do that. How do you think you're going to live up to a perfect God standards? You can't. You will be crushed by that unless you reframe it in the question, now that the resurrection has happened, now what? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my relationships? What does this mean for all of humanity? This is how the rest of the New Testament is framed and positioned. Everything, our lives, the morality, the way that we live, the way that we treat our neighbors, the way that we deal with our enemies, the way that we deal with our business transactions, the way that we pay our rent, the way that we enjoy food and wine and good company, the way that we do all of these things are to be done in light of the fact that the grave is now empty. And this is the issue. This is what's happening. So I'll get more to that next week as we begin to unpack some of this. But what I really want to focus on right now is really the issue that's, I think, sort of central to the storyline here, is that um, today we'll look at, I'll just kind of tell you the next things that we'll look at the next two weeks, um, today and the next week. Today we'll look at this question or this issue of the resurrection, put it up on the slide here, the resurrection actually, now that it's happened, because it's happened, the resurrection actually demonstrates to us what happens to those who are actually captivated by a new master. And what I mean by that is that we see at verse 8 a transition, that these disciples literally go from being full of fear 
being full of uncertainty, being full of uh, a sense of uh, not knowing what's going to happen with their future because Jesus is gone. To radically being changed. They, their, their motivations, they're tra- they are tr- changed people. They are people that are now in awe of the resurrected king. So that's what we'll look at more in just a second. The second thing that we'll look at next week, um, and third thing that we'll look at next week, is we'll see that these people are going to be commissioned to a new lifestyle. What I mean by that is that there, what, what happens throughout the story that we just read, that every time they had an interaction or encounter with the living God, something natural just transpired. They went out and they communicated. They announced. They spoke and they did. So in other words, uh, they are going to be commissioned by Jesus to go communicate. And communication is going to take the form of two different ways. Speaking and deeds. Words and actions. Just like Jesus, by the way. Words and actions. And finally, we'll take a look at next week, uh, being controlled by a new power. Even though Mark doesn't address it, other passages address it, that Jesus actually gives them a new power to be able to do this. We call this the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon them, fill them, strengthen them, empower them to be able to do the work uh, to commission them to what Jesus called them to do. So right now, what I want to do is I want to focus on this issue that these people were captivated by a brand new master. And I just want to spend the rest of our time looking at this. Now, we're told that these women, like I said earlier, they were seized. Uh, and that particular Greek word can mean to be possessed by, to be controlled by, uh, that there's an experience of a state or a condition, that these women were radically seized by something. We're told that they were seized by these emotions, the emotions of a sense of uh, trembling and astonishment and fear. Now, Mark, uh, it's not the first time that Mark has used these words. In fact, the very first time Mark actually uses the words to describe a similar type of uh, response we find in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, it says this. Filled with great fear, he said to, they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So again, I want you to take a look at the, the uh, again, kind of the, the, the way that Mark writes to leave questions in our minds. The disciples are with Jesus. They're on a boat. Jesus speaks to a storm. The storm stops. And all of a sudden, this radical sense of astonishment, uh, fear grips them. They're seized by it. The disciples are seized by fear and astonishment. And this question arises from them, who is this that does this? Because we don't know anybody else that speaks to a tornado and it actually listens. We've known people that speak to tornadoes, but it doesn't listen. They're not jobs. They're not normal. We try to avoid those people because they're not altogether there. But this one speaks, and creation actually listens. Who is this? And they're astonished, amazed by this. Uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 15 says, They came to Jesus, and they saw a demon-possessed man sitting, clothed in his right mind. And it says, and they were afraid. Again, here's a guy that was possessed by some form of uh, unclean spirit. Something that's intangible. Something that, you know, human beings have no power against because we don't have weapons to fight against, uh, you know, untangible, intangible types of beings. And yet here's Jesus sitting with this guy that had this reputation of being demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, obviously he was naked, in his right mind, before, obviously, he was scatterbrained. He was not thinking clearly. He was demon-possessed. But here he is, clothed and in his right mind, and they're absolutely shocked because the question naturally that Mark wants us to ask, who is this? Who does this? Who casts out demons? Who has the power to take people that were completely trapped and lost and broken and naked and ashamed and defiled and ruined 
and restore them so their lives are totally normal? Who has the power to do that? These are the questions that Mark wants for us to keep asking all throughout the storyline. Now, when Jesus died, he died, as we said last week, as a would-be king. So that means that when Jesus rose again, he rose again as the true king. For example, if when Jesus died and the other people on the cross died along with Jesus, if by chance one of the other thieves had resurrected spontaneously from the grave, nobody would go out and worship that guy. They would just simply look at him and think, gosh, the world's a strange place. There's all sorts of weird things we've never known existed before. Dead people rise. That's not weird. That's weird. But nobody's going to go worship that guy. Why did people in early Christians, in the early community of Christians, worship Jesus? Because he died as a would-be Messiah. He died as the Son of God. And therefore, his resurrection was evidence, proof, vindication, validation, that everything he claimed to have done was fact and truly happened. So here's what happened. On the first day of the week, when these women went to the grave, and Jesus was no longer in the grave, verse 8 They were gripped with astonishment, gripped with awe, gripped with fear. They were blown away. The question again on their minds is, now what? The king is risen. Now what? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for our community? What does that mean for the world in which we live in that's broken, that's destroyed? What does that mean for people's lives who are broken? If Jesus, while on this earth, set people free who were broken, If Jesus, while on this earth, exercised power that was unlike anybody else, if now that Jesus has broken through the greatest enemy of all mankind, death and the grave, what does this mean for all humanity? This is the issue. And what I want to focus on right now is this issue that these people, this early community, was absolutely in awe of the resurrected Jesus. That's what gripped them. In fact, I would go so far as to say, that's how you describe the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 is kind of an interesting chapter. I was reading over it again earlier today. And there's, there's a statement in there that basically says that all of these people gathered together and they were as one body. They were as one. They were unified. I just read that and I just thought, that's shocking. Because these people were never unified over anything. Disciples, Jesus' main 12 people were always arguing and bickering over who was going to be the greatest and who did the best exploits. They were never together. They were never unified in anything. Always arguing, always fighting, always jockeying for position, posturing themselves as to who was going to be the greatest. But finally, something happened to where they're, now they're all one. What happened? And the only thing that you can describe as to what happened was not just simply fact that an event happened, but that event led to the sense that these were people that were in awe of the one who had risen again from the dead. And that sense of awe drew them together. And they were one. I want to suggest to you that it's a sense of awestruck wonder that defined the early church. That made it great. It it was a sense that these were a group of people not just simply united on a mission. They were. This wasn't just simply a group of people that had a good understanding of the Bible. They did. This wasn't just simply a group of people that, you know, did good social deeds. That was a priority. But what kept this group of people together was this overwhelming sense that they were absolutely in awe and amazement 
of the resurrected king. And all of that stems out of verse 8 when these women, and I think Mark wants us just to pause, we read that and go, Selah, these women were in awe of the resurrected Christ. Are you? I mean, this is really the issue we have to deal with because look, at the end of the day, we can be people that focus on studying the Bible. That's good. We do that. We do that a lot. We love reading the scripture. We can be people that focus on music. We love music. We've got great musicians, great worship leaders in the church. We love that. But none of these things ultimately are, as an end of themselves, leave us with a sense of awe. It's Jesus. They need to take us to Jesus. And Jesus is the one that leaves us in awe if we understand, if we see what he's done for us. And this is what has happened and has taken place with these ladies. Let me give an example. And there's a sense in which we're surrounded by awe-inspired people. Oftentimes, though, they're not older than three. I'm, I'm really serious here. I mean, there's, we have to deal with this because this is, this is the part of our reality, all right? Um, we have some good friends. Um, they've been a part of our church, our family, for a very long time. Cole and Ryan, they're part of this church. They have a son. His name is Bo. And my daughter, the other day, I was talking with her, and she babysits for them. And um, Bo is really into trains. I'm not even sure exactly how old he is. I don't know, two maybe, something like that. Um, I don't know. My wife's right here. How old is he? I'm really bad at this stuff. Three. Um, don't ask me to remember your birthday and... I won't do that. My wife can remember all that stuff. But the point of the matter is, is Bo's three. He's really into trains, all right? He's not just into trains, like looking at them, being like, oh, look at this. But he's like absolutely in awe of trains. So my daughter comes home after babysitting him, and she was, she, I'm like, how did the babysitting go? She's like, Dad, he just sat there the whole time and watched the train go around the track. He sat there and just like watched it over and over. I'm like, how long? She's like, I don't know, like half an hour. 15 minutes, half, just forever. He was just mesmerized by it. You know, it's funny because the reality is that's not shocking to us. Because kids, I mean, it's shocking to us because we're like, how can a kid do that? Because we put ourselves in a position, we'd be bored after the first time around the track. We're like, all right, been there, done that, seen that, nothing new going on here. But for a kid, there's a sense of eternal pleasure in that sense of going on and on and on. There's a sense of enjoyment and awe, astonishment of that happening. I can remember when my, both of my daughters were really young, it's, you know, there's, there's a period of time, again, I don't know exactly what age this happens. It might be like months, um, maybe like two months, three months, I don't know, um, where they begin to open their eyes, and I mean, kids actually open their eyes normally when they're first born. <laughs> they're not like kittens, like three months in, they're like, oh, look, they open their eyes. Like, uh, but I remember like, there's a period of time when my kids started like, becoming observant of the world around them. All right? And, and there's, there's a moment I remember with my wife and one of my daughters, um, uh, she was like being held by, my held by my wife and she was just looking around. I think she like, she looked at a lamp, not that lamp, but she was looking at a lamp and like, she was like focused on the lamp. And I just remember my mind thinking, what's she thinking? Like she can't take her eyes off that thing. She's mesmerized. She's fixated upon that lamp. She's in awe of that lamp. All right. What is she thinking? And it's it just kind of in my mind, I'm thinking, I, I think she's like in awe of that thing. She's blown away. And if you've ever watched a child, there's a sense of awe and wonder that a child has. They can walk around and they can find enjoyment out of anything. If you've ever seen a kid maybe for the first time go down on the beach and they put their hands in the sand and they're like, no way. And they're like looking at their hands and they can't believe it and they're checking things out. They, and next day you take them to the beach and they're doing the same thing. They're mesmerized by it. They cannot Get over the fact that they're in something brand new and it's always new to them. 
Everything is brand new to them. Because of that, there's a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, a sense of beauty, a sense of glory that captivates their soul, that captivates their imagination. They are satisfied. They're happy in those moments. But see, here's ultimately what unfortunately tends to happen for us as human beings. As adults, we grow up and life has this tendency of beating the sense of awe and awesomeness and awareness out of us. I mean, it's just simply the fact. It's the way that things are. And I don't know exactly what age it is or when this transition begins to happen. But if you're really honest with yourself, you'll notice that one of the things that oftentimes is, is lacking or missing from your life is a sense of you're not intrigued by anything. You're not absolutely in awe or intrigued or amazed. Life is just monotonous. It's just daily grind, daily job, daily horrible people you got to deal with, daily bills you got to pay, daily information you got to sort through, daily arguments you got to somehow wade through with your spouse or your roommates. Just a daily grind. Everything's full of monotony. There's no sense of awe. Your heart's not captured. It's not captivated. It's not gripped. It's not the way that these women were at the grave. What happens oftentimes for us as adults, we get more cynical. We begin to roll our eyes more. We begin to fold our arms, tap our feet, get frustrated. We're less patient. When things don't go our way, we're upset. And at the end of the day, what typically ends up happening is that we become more and more of a spectator sitting on the sidelines than a participant in the life that God calls us into. This is why somebody can be a Christian for a really, really long time. Memorize a lot of verses, have their theology fine-tuned, read their Bible, maybe even daily, maybe even be involved in some sort of Bible study and be some of the most discontent, unhappy, frustrated, critical type of people you've ever met. They've lost the sense of the awe, awesomeness, wonder, beauty, glory, power, majesty of God. They've lost it. This is what happens to us, guys. And the reality is, God actually tells us, he says, taste and see through the Psalms. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And the whole point of that is not just simply having some sort of abstract knowledge that, oh, there's a God and that he exists. It's not just simply having knowledge, having information, dotting your theological I's and your theological crossing your T's and so on and so forth. It's not just simply having the right information. Because see, here's what happens oftentimes. For us, as we get older, and especially if you get older in the church, there's a tendency as a Christian to begin to shift where the focus now begins to be more so upon what you know and not so much upon how in awe you are of the majesty and the glory of God. Something shifts along the lines. And what happens is that Jesus basically says the way that the kingdom of God appears, the way it's revealed, the way that it's made known, is you've got to become like a child to enter that kingdom. And notice Jesus did not say, you got to be childish. There's a distinction, I think an intentional distinction, between childish and childlike. Childish is more of a posture of the heart. That when a child doesn't get what it wants, when things are not going the child's way, the child loses a sense of wonder and awe, 
And the child then begins to throw a tantrum, fold its arms, stomp its feet, roll its eyes, make noises and sounds that grunts that somehow demonstrate its disfavor. And we as adults, we become childish. And what has happened is that rather than being motivated and moved by the sense of awe and astonishment of who God is, the resurrected king, we grow cynical, we grow jaded, because life is constantly throwing this stuff at us. We have to figure out a way how to sort through it all. And so typically what we do is we just sort of build these, these barriers around our heart. We close ourselves off. Relationships that may have once been beneficial or a blessing, but now maybe a little bit painful or maybe difficult or challenging, we oftentimes just sort of put a little bit of a callus, a little bit of hardness around our heart. But the problem with that is, is that's all part of the childish nature and not the childlike nature. We don't have a greater sense of awe, a greater sense of astonishment, a greater sense of wonder when that happens. In fact, what happens when that takes place is we become people, like I said earlier, that tend to be more spectators than people that actually engage and be part of the plan and the purpose that Jesus was unfolding and unpackaging during that first day and the resurrection day. So the reality is, is we have to be honest and deal with this. The resurrection for these ladies demonstrated the fact that things are different. It's a whole new world that they've been brought into. Things are not going to be the way that they ever were before. And they're always going to be changing, always be unfolding, always be radically beautiful and different if we trust and see that God is in control of this new world. This is the whole point of the resurrection. That when Jesus comes and he launches his kingdom building movement, like I said earlier, he died as a would-be Messiah. That means his resurrection was evidence of the fact that the world has a new king at its center. It's not given to the brokenness, the decay of this life. In other words, the cynicism that we build in our hearts, the tendencies that we have in our minds to just think, you know what, relationships never going to get better, so I might as well just harden myself. There not, won't be any joy or happiness in this particular area, so I might as well just somehow become a spectator rather than engage. All of that, Jesus is saying, that if indeed he is resurrected from the dead, all of that will change. Because the resurrection gives these new possibilities that areas where there were pain and suffering and hardship, those can be redeemed. Areas where there was unforgiveness and hurt can now give way to a brand new way of reconciliation and restoration. Areas where there was defilement brought on by our own sin and our own giving ourselves away to things that basically break and destroy and ruin our hearts can now give way to a sense of purity. We're not locked into that. The past doesn't have to describe the present or the future. Jesus does now. And this is the issue that the women were dealing with, that if Jesus is not in the grave, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our community of believers? What does this mean for the rest of the world? And ultimately, Mark wants us to work that out. And you need to work this out. If Jesus is indeed risen, do you believe that? And if you believe that, is your belief just merely a theoretical belief? Is it just merely concepts? Or is it a reality that has transformed you, changed you? You're in awe of it. Because that's the only way that you can describe the early church. They weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Don't somehow make that mistake to think they were. They had a lot of issues, a lot of problems, but 
This was a group of people that was absolutely controlled and motivated and moved by the sense that something actually happened on that Sunday. That grave was actually empty. And what that meant was brand new life had entered into this world, new creation, new relationships, new realities had now come onto the radar screen that they had never envisioned before because God accomplished for them the absolute impossible. So the issue that we have to really deal with and wrestle with is do we, you and I, believe that? Is that something that defines us? Or have we lost our sense of awe? Have we just kind of given up? Have we become so inundated with information and stuff and life and we've just sort of tapped out to the issues that have constantly keep bombarding us? We just give up. That's not the life God has for us. My prayer, my hope, is that you and I, as a community, as a faith community, as a church, this is what we would do for each other. That there would be so much love in this room, in this church, in all of our services, amongst our people, in our small groups, that we would fight to make certain, to help each other, to fight to keep ourselves in awe of this unbelievable event that took place through Jesus rising again from the dead. That that would be the centerpiece of our faith. Paul would even go so far as to say that if Jesus, in fact, did not rise again from the dead, you and I, all of us, our hope, our little community is on vain. This is how important this is to the centrality of faith. But if he did rise again from the dead, what does that mean? Not for your intellect, but for your heart. Has it changed you? Are you in awe of it? Or... Has it just become a theoretical truth that you've grown bored of? See, here's the problem with us as adults. One of the reasons why oftentimes we turn to all sorts of secondary things is because we've basically grown tired. We've basically become bored of things in our lives. And we need to be aware of lots of different counterfeits, in which I want to get to that in a second. So I want to finish up with a couple thoughts to chew on to help us maybe think about ways in which can to help us to recover to restore our sense of awe. Now, again, I don't, I don't really want to emphasize these things as like, you know, do them, and somehow everything's going to miraculously be better in your life. Uh, I do believe that God intends for us to work these things out, the way he says, with fear and trembling. Meaning, as we walk with Jesus, there is a sense where, by faith, we need to keep fighting, trusting, pushing, pressing our hearts. It's one of the reasons why we oftentimes encourage people, be known in this church. You're somebody that just comes on Sunday, maybe even if your attendance on Sunday is patchy, you maybe come twice a month, and not even at that, there's maybe even a disconnect. If you're not known, there's a tendency for you to slip away for these truths that just simply becomes theoretical to you, just informational to you, rather than something that's transformative. And we want these truths, we believe that the truth of the gospel, the truth that Jesus rose again from the dead, should be something that captivates, captures, mesmerizes us with this un- believable reality that Jesus is doing something brand new. So the first thing I think that can help us is one, know your place. Know your place. What's amazing to me in the storyline is that these were women that were at the grave. This is shocking. I've mentioned you guys this, uh, mentioned this to you a couple weeks ago, that if you were to be basically making a brand new religion, for example, and you wanted your religion to have credibility in the first century, you would not choose women to be the means to carry out the fundamental, uh, foundational, 
uh, statement that Jesus is resurrecting from the dead. First century, women's testimony was unbelievable. Like, not like, wow, it's unbelievable. Like, literally, unbelievable. It was, it was not believed. It was, it was admissible. Like, you would, you would dismiss it from a court because there was just a tendency to believe that, you know, they were maybe emotional that day and they weren't seeing things clearly and so on and so forth. So just dismiss what they had to say. Um, and here's Mark telling us that at the tomb who saw the risen Savior, these were women. Not just any women, but these were women that were given their dignity back. This is the whole of the story, the message of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He basically says something like this. He says, look, you guys, most of us as human beings, most, most of you as him, most of human beings run around trying to figure out how to make their life work. That's how you and I act, isn't it? We try to figure out, you know, the way the New Testament puts it, is you figure out like what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on, right? Um, we do that all the time. Um, that's, that's why we go to the internet so often. We're just like, you know, recipe. I need a recipe. I need to figure out how I'm going to make money to buy my food or what am I going to wear? How good am I going to look? Um, all of these things we strive for. And what happens is that there's a tendency for us to lose our sense of awe because we're constantly trying to compete, constantly trying to look good, constantly trying to impress people that we don't even really like, buying things we don't even really need to just somehow make our lives better. But in reality, at the end of the day, we're nothing but filled with, full of anxiety. Our lives are not any better. We've lost a sense of awe, and we're cynical. And Jesus says, you have a Father who's in heaven, and he knows you. He created you. And your Father is so invested in you as a person. He knows everything about you. He knows the numbers of hair on your head. He stores up your tears in a bottle, meaning he knows he's intimately connected to with your pain, your hardship, your struggles, your challenges. He knows all of these things radically well. He goes so far as to even say that your father, he takes care of birds when they fall out of a tree and die. Like, human beings don't even really care about little swallows. I mean, think about a little swallow. It's probably the type of bird he's talking about. They're worthless, meaning, like, literally, you don't eat them because there's nothing on them. They're just worthless. They fall out of the sky. No one ever really, like, you know, tabulates that and figures out, oh, another bird died. But Jesus says your father actually knows when a bird falls out of a tree and dies. He knows. And his point is that if your father in heaven knows when a bird dies, how much more does he know you? who bear his image, what you need to survive. See, our problem as human beings is we actually have bought a lie thinking that we are kings and queens. And we think we need to order our lives. If you ever tried to figure out, like, what's wrong with my life? I'll tell you, in short, simple, you know, unpacking of this, the reality is, is that we think that we're kings of our lives and queens of our lives. And we have to somehow figure out everything we've got to do to somehow make our lives work how we're going to pay our bills, how things are going to take care of itself. And what happens is we get caught up in this. And at the end of the day, we're full of anxiety. We take out our frustrations and anger upon our kids. Our kids take it out on the pets. The pets take it out on anything else around the yard. And we are in a world where there's just nothing but brokenness. And Jesus says the problem is you, don't, you forgot your place. You forgot that you have a father that values you. 
See, sin has this dehumanizing effect upon us. Dehumanizes us. In other words, it makes us less than what God intended for us to be. So first of all, I think as we know our place, know who we are, and know who God is, there's a tendency to restore that sense of awe, that you're loved by this God that's all-powerful. Second thing, beware of counterfeits. Beware of counterfeits. There's a tendency in our lives to actually look for things. that We know we have this deep sense that something's not right in our lives. And so we look for counterfeits. I'm going to read you a really quick quote. Um, uh, by a guy by the name of Aline Debotton. Uh, he wrote this little book and kind of a really great little statement. Here's what he says. For thousands of years, it had been, I don't, I don't think this guy's a Christian or not, but he says, for thousands of years, it has been nature and its supposed creator that had the monopoly on awe. It had been the ice caps in the deserts, the volcanoes, the glaciers, that they had given us a sense of finitude um, and limitation that elicited a feeling in which fear and respect coagulated into a strangely pleasure-pleasing uh, feeling of humility. He says, a feeling which the philosophers of the 18th century uh, had famously termed as the sublime. He goes on to say, he says, over the course of the 19th century, the dominant catalyst for that feeling of the sublime had ceased to be nature. In other words, we're not really in awe of mountains anymore. Like, we don't take the time to go down the beach and just sit in front of a wave and are in awe of that because a, of, a lot of life happens around cities. And a lot of cities are powered by technology. He goes on to say, now, obviously, we live in San Luis, which is a little bit different for the context where we live. But he goes on to say, we, have now, uh, we are now deep in the era of technological sublime. He says, when awe could most powerfully be invoked, uh, not by forests or icebergs, but by supercomputers and rockets and particle accelerators, uh, we were now almost exclusively, we are amazed, we are ultimately amazed by ourselves. In other words, what he's saying is that, that look, for all of nature that has caused human beings throughout, you know, millennia to be amazed. In our culture, in a lot of ways, we're amazed by technology. I, I admit it. I, I am a closet fan of Mac products. All right? I admit it. Like, I look forward to the moments when they're going to do, like, a Mac product launch. And, like, I had a friend that actually worked there. And uh, I would always ask him, like, like what's going to be coming up next? And so I, I read the blogs. I like the type of stuff. Funny thing is, I've, I've, I've kind of had enough of a track record now to realize, like, I can actually analyze myself and find out what type of a shelf life does the excitement of a Mac product have for me. We're, we're talking, I think the best analysis I've come up with is maybe like a day. Maybe a day of just being like, no way, there's like an iPad mini, that's really cool. All right, then I'm over it. So the point of the matter is, is that things like technology don't amaze us. This is one of the reasons why some of you guys spend hours trying to shop an app store, looking for that app that's going to somehow consume a lot of your time. You're looking for something to cause you to be in awe. And at the end of the day, what this writer is basically saying, because there's nothing like that, we just sort of tend to be in awe of ourselves. But again, that has a shelf life. At the end of the day, we get bored. We look for alternatives. I, I believe that oftentimes what happens is that our lives aren't exciting enough. So what happens, we look for lives that are one of the reasons why people like are into following celebrities they got a fascinating life i'll follow them or we spend hours you know reading facebook feeds like oh i gotta find out like what everybody else is doing in their life because my life is horrible it's boring it's monotonous but somebody else maybe isn't so i'll read their life and 
by proxy, I'll live through them. Really, at the end of the day, we're not just simply looking for information. We're looking to be in awe. Some of us, you know, we realize that maybe our lives aren't as organized or as beautiful as they should be. So we spend a lot of time reading the Bibles of this culture, like magazines that tell us how to be fashionable and how to be stylish. We, you know, spend hours on Pinterest trying to find, you know, that hairdo that's going to make you look better or, you know, some, how to organize your closet so that life's going to somehow be that much better for you. Find a cupcake recipe that's going to make your life that much more incredible. But at the end of the day, really what we're looking for is not just simply information to somehow answer that momentary sense of monotony. We're looking to be in awe. To be amazed. And if you search your heart, you know that is the ultimate truth of what's wrong with most of our lives. We've lost a sense of being in awe. Greatness. And at the grave, these two women were in awe. Beyond the grave, that little community of followers of Jesus in the upper room were in awe. Throughout the book of Acts, they were in awe of this resurrected king. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, unpacking the theological, doctrinal concepts and issues of how to live this out, all stems being framed from the fact that Jesus is not in the grave. And this is unbelievably good news. Because he resurrected, not just as a good teacher, but as a king. Which means he has brought into this world, into my life, into all the cosmos, a new order. And on top of that, he's invited me to join him. Has that sunk into you? Do you believe that? Do you know that? I mean, is that something that you are in awe of? The problem with our lives is that we have sought to build an alternate story. That's the problem with all humanity. We're all, we all think that you and I, as individuals, are our own little kings and our own little queens. And there's a funny thing about this is because all of us, we feel that the weight of our life is dependent upon our writing our lives for ourselves. In other words, we are the one who writes the script of our lives, but we also recognize we need a star or a hero in that story. So who are we going to pick to be the star or the hero of the story that we're writing? Huh, I guess I'll choose myself. And that's what we all do. We try, we attempt to write the story of our own lives, and we attempt to be the star of our own lives, and the stories of our lives always end in failure. And if what you understand happened on the cross is that Jesus took upon himself the consequences of when people write their own story because it always leads to the same path, death, destruction, darkness, hell. Jesus took that upon himself. Why? To bring you into his story. I used the word last week that what the gospel does is it restores us. There's a root word in there, to restory put us back in the story to free us from the stories that we've been in and of ourselves we felt the burden to write it we felt the burden to perform it and yet we're failing over and over and over again but the grace of the gospel is that God says I want to restore bring you into my story where you can be in awe of my greatness and I want to finish because we got to 
I got a lot more I can talk about. I'm done. I want to finish, and I want to pray for us, because for us as a church, I'm convinced that we can be very theologically sound, but not be in awe of Jesus. In fact, we can even be going to church, just be still doing the actions, doing the Christian stuff, but not be in awe of Jesus. And I want to pray for us that that would not happen to us. And that if it is happening to us, if it has happened to us, if it's happened to you, the Bible describes that what we need to do then is repent, which means to confess it, to turn away from it. You know the guys coming up. What I want to do is I want to finish up. I want all of us to stand, and I want to pray for us. And the way I want to do this is because, you know, we're church, we're family. And I realize that, you know, some of you guys may be guests. Maybe some of you here, you're, you're not even Christians. Every week we have a lot of non-believers come. Glad that you guys are here. Um, but I want to speak directly, specifically to those of you that are, are, are followers of Jesus. You're part of this community. I want to pray for us as a community. And if you're not part of that community, I mean, you're not a Christian, I want to pray that really at the end of the day, what you would come to discover and find today is that what your heart's really looking for is something to be in awe of. And nothing's going to sustain that weightiness of what your heart really is longing to throw itself upon other than Jesus. I want to invite you into that. So what I want to do, the way I want to pray is I want for all of us to basically reach across the aisles and maybe put an arm around somebody or lay a hand on someone's shoulder or hold a hand. I don't, I don't really care. Um, whatever you feel comfortable with, if you're kind of weirded out by that, don't be. Get over it. Um, lovingly, get over it. Um, reach across the aisle. Don't be afraid. You know, don't let any barriers to come over you guys. And I'm going to pray for us because as a, as a church, and if you're sitting in the back, you know, don't, Come on in. Don't, don't, don't just stay off. And that's, that's, the, that's the thing that we want to not do is to be people that isolate ourselves. This is about being brought in. Come in to be part of the family, part of this new creation that Jesus has begun, that started at Easter, that first Resurrection Sunday. And I want to pray for us right now that God would just restore in us a sense of awe. And then we'll just spend a few songs uh, singing. Um, but let me pray for us right now. God, right now, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters here. God, all of us, we confess that there is an easy tendency for us to lose sight of the sense of awe and wonder of who you are. It's easy for us to maybe even right now to feel comfortable, to be like we want to get through this moment. But God, what we need more than anything is to address the issues of our heart, to address these things. It's like a cancer. It's like a hardness. It's like a, a chunk of clay on a wheel that's just grown cold and dry and it's hardened it's a lump that somehow either needs to be extracted or needs water to be just doused upon it and god i pray that our hearts would melt and somehow god you would restore and renew in us a sense of of awe and a sense of expectation that you are here that you are truly here god for us as your people that we would respond in worship and in awe and in wonder of who you are so help us, we pray now, God. We confess to you our sin. We confess to you those areas of hardness. Right now, just as we are going to sing, there's those areas in your heart you need to confess. Confess them to God. We have some rugs in the front. I want to encourage you, if you want to just get down on your knees to come worship him. Uh, kneeling is a posture, not just simply of the body, but of the heart. But if it's in the heart, sometimes it's a good thing to do it in your body. So we have rugs in the front. We raise our hands to the Lord when we worship as a way of saying, we're children. 
my son, your daughter maybe. We raise our hands to our God. He's our daddy. He's our father. He's our Abba. He loves us. We love him. We want to be in awe of him. I want to encourage you. Maybe if that's something that you struggle with, like you have a hard time trying to figure out maybe how do you, you know, sing? Do you just sing? Do you use your body? Use your hand? I want to encourage you. Maybe for the first time even, just raise your hands to God. Let go. It's a way of letting go and saying, I'm going to let go of everything. I'm not going to care. I'm not going to worry about what other people are thinking. I'm going to just worship my God amongst the family of God's people and let God do for you what God desires to do, which is to restore, to renew, to regenerate, to bring you back into something that's unbelievable, to be a part of something that will never end. So let's sing. We'll partake of communion. There's some in the back. Um, If you would like prayer for anything that's going on in your life, anything, man, if you've got sin issues that you're dealing with, sicknesses that you're dealing with, you just need prayer for anything, maybe healing. We're going to have some people over off by the cross. We'd love to pray for you. We have rugs in the front. Sit down. But just let the posture of our heart, postures of our body, be one not like childish, but one of like children, childlike reaching out to our Father who loves us. God, I pray that you would renew, restore, give us a fresh vision, a new way of understanding, of seeing the beauty of Jesus' death and resurrection. God, let that re-grip, change, transform our hearts in a fresh new way. God, that that story wouldn't just simply be a story that we learned, but that would be a truth, a reality, something, God, that keeps us in awe, something that we keep asking those questions. Now that Jesus is resurrected, what does that mean for my broken relationships? Now that Jesus is resurrected, what does that mean how I run my business? But, God, all of these questions, that they would become fresh and life-giving and life-generating, God, that it would be something for us as a community of your followers that we would be always figuring out fresh ways, not only to retell it, but how to unpack it and to live it. So Holy Spirit, we pray for your help to make us a community that first of all is in awe of you. And that from that sense of awe, it would overflow to a sense of love to one another. So help us, God, to embody, to live out this gospel here on the Central Coast and beyond. Pray and ask all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.